Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, with a message entitled, The Trial and Condemnation of Jesus. So turning your Bibles to Matthew 26, 57 to 68, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The trial and condemnation of Jesus was not only a travesty of justice, it exposed the human heart for all the evil to which it is capable. Think of the scene. Annas was there. He had been the previous high priest, and he was also the father-in-law of the current high priest, an evil man, as was his son-in-law, the current high priest named Caiaphas. Then there was Pilate, self-seeking, superstitious. Then there was the immoral Herod Antipas, These men were the judges of the one man who had never sinned. And furthermore, Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin, men who were more concerned for power than they were for truth and justice. And then there's this matter of the trial, a rigged trial. John tells us why. Before Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, John 11, 49 to 50 says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. So that means that the leading men of power, and that includes all the men of the Sanhedrin, they were all aware that the decision to kill Jesus had already been made long before the trial began. And furthermore, we also know that the very nature of this trial was illegal. For one, no capital trial, that's a a trial that would result in the death penalty, according to Jewish law, was permitted to be held during the night. This one was held between the hours of 1 to 3 a.m., Friday morning. Second, no execution was permitted during a Jewish feast. And of course, we know that all the rules regarding proper trials were broken. The verdict was in before the hearing began. The men doing the judging were known for unjust and evil practices, and the hearing was illegal, and this is the background. Jesus has just been arrested, and now he's led to trial. So let's read the introduction to the trial, which is Matthew 26, 57 and 58. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Matthew, as is often the case, gives us a shortened version of the accounts. Jesus actually underwent three separate trials or hearings. There was, if you wish to use our language, a preliminary hearing that was held in the home of the previous high priest, and the true power behind all of those events, that man was named Annas. John 18, 13 tells us, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So that hearing produced nothing, and it only reinforced the need to produce a better case the next time. The second hearing happens in the more official residence of the palace of the high priest, that's Caiaphas. This seems to be what Matthew describes here. Matthew simply omits the earlier hearing, presumably because it produced nothing. The first hearing was a nod to the influence that Annas would have over those events. But now the trial moves to the house of the high priest, and it would have been quite a magnificent structure, that home. It was a mansion, a palace. It overlooked the temple area. Its purpose was to exude authority. The high priest was always a Sadducee. He was a man who did not believe in life after death. He's a man who didn't recognize any scripture outside of the Mosaic law. 
Furthermore, the Sadducees were wealthy and they were well-connected with the Roman authorities. The high priest was an elite of the elites. Matthew tells us the scribes and elders were also there. They gathered. The scribes were the elites of the Pharisees, who not only copied scripture, but were scholars in Old Testament law. They were also men who relied heavily on tradition, often elevating tradition over scripture. And Jesus had tangled with these men many times. And since Jesus had bested them often, they hated him. Now, finally, the elders, those were members of the Sanhedrin. And so since Matthew mentions, in effect, the Sanhedrin, we have to assume that Matthew's describing right here in this passage, the second trial of Jesus, in which there is not the entire ruling council, but a leading representation of it. It's come together in the mansion of Caiaphas, and they're in a hurry. They must condemn Jesus quickly. After this trial, the entire Sanhedrin will be called upon to rubber stamp this matter. Now then, according to verse 58, Peter is following, going to the house of Annas, then to the house of Caiaphas. He's probably doing this because he's made the claim that although others will flee, he's not going to. He seems, at least at this juncture, to make good on his promise. So how did he get in? Well, John 18, 15 to 16 tells us, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Well, the other disciple seems to have been John, and he had some connection with the staff. Nonetheless, Peter's standing outside. Now, to the actual hearing itself. Now, this part's almost impossible to fathom, Matthew 26, 59 to 61. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, did you notice how Matthew describes this? Annas and Caiaphas, those are the high priests, And the leaders of the council, they're looking for false witnesses. Now, I have no doubt they would not have described their activities in that fashion. No doubt they would have probably said, we're looking for witnesses. But remember, the outcome of the trial has already been decided. When these men had already committed themselves in advance to putting Jesus to death, now they're just looking for justification. I mean, you consider the ninth commandment. Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And whenever I teach the Ten Commandments, I like to say that they, you know, they constitute God's top ten, the things that God hates the most. And in truth, Matthew's right. These men are not concerned with truth. They're concerned with justifying the murder of Jesus. Any witness that will help that cause is welcomed. And furthermore, the leading religious leaders of the nation are aware that the men who are called to testify, well, these guys are scoundrels and liars. So what do we make of it? When men either hate to such a degree or are interested in accomplishing what they want to such a degree, that they gladly do that which God hates the most. How quickly men throw away their eternity for the expediency of one hour. And so as far as these men are concerned, any known slander who will give them what they want is welcomed at this illegal kangaroo court. And here's the kicker. 
with all the liars, one lined up after another, willing to give testimony, they can't find within this crew of liars the justification that they need to put Jesus to death. But just when it looks like all is lost, finally at the end, two men come forward and they give valuable testimony. They remember an incident from three years earlier. John 2.19, Jesus' first visit into Jerusalem had said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Now, in truth, Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He was speaking about the temple of his body, not about the actual physical temple. And here's where I think that liars are often effective. They often take a piece of truth and then they twist it. It's very effective, especially to two groups of people, to the gullible and to the immoral. The gullible have a belief system. You know, they think where there's smoke, there's fire. And so if people are making accusations, there must be something behind it. And the immoral are different. They use slander very effectively and they accomplish things with it. Now notice what these two witnesses actually say. This man said, they both agree to it. They're nodding their heads. Yeah, we were there when he said it. He said, I will destroy this temple. That's the first part. Now, of course, Jesus never said, I am able to destroy the temple. He said, if someone destroys this temple, I will raise it. But that, to these men, that's unimportant. And to the gullible, you know, whether he said he would do it or just do it, that's a matter of no importance. See, the point behind all of this is that they're trying to cast Jesus as a very dangerous revolutionary intent on destruction and social chaos. That makes him a threat, and certainly from the perspective of the Romans, who had already executed many revolutionaries, this was excellent testimony. And furthermore, it wasn't just one witness, it was two. Now to verses 62 to 63a. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Of course, the high priest was trying to get Jesus to say something. I mean, perhaps he would say, no, that's not what I said. You know, in that way, he would have to admit that he had said something about destroying the temple. I mean, evil men are not interested in truth. And Jesus does the wise thing. He simply remains silent. Speaking does not help when people lie. Would you like to receive all of the latest Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, Bible teaching and encouragement resources directly to your inbox every Monday to Friday? Then be sure to sign up for the free daily audio mail. Every day you'll receive an email containing links to all the daily Bible teaching programs, newest blogs, and all the audio and video messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt. Once you sign up, All the newest from Dr. John and Phil will be one click away. So to subscribe for audio mail, visit backtothebible.ca and at the bottom of the page, you'll find a simple sign-up form. Now all your favorite resources will be sent to you every weekday. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 and we'll make sure you receive the next Back to the Bible Canada audio mail. One has to imagine Jesus standing before the rulers of Israel. We know from archaeological finds from the Qumran community, that community thought that the entire temple leadership was absolutely corrupt. And I mention this here because I want to draw a distinction between the profoundly evil religious leadership of Israel 
and the people of Israel. Israel, as Romans 3.19 reminds us, is God's lesson book for the nations. And in that sense, the people of Israel are no better and no worse than the rest of us. Rather, Israel is God's lesson book. They're a mirror, if you will, showing the whole world that we are like them, sinful and in need of grace and mercy. But the leadership, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, were at that time completely sold to evil, men who were determined to kill the Son of God. You know, in the New Testament, the term the Jews, well, that's used in a variety of ways. But often it's used not to refer to Israel as a whole, but to the religious leadership. And I mention this because 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 to 15 says that the Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And then Paul adds, they drove us out of Jerusalem and the local synagogues as well. And they displeased God and opposed all mankind. Now, in the Middle Ages, when people cared very little about careful Bible study. I mean, verses like those were pressed into service for a horrible anti-Semitism, the persecution of the Jews in Europe. But of course, you know, the verse still stands. The Jews means key religious leadership. They were steeped to evil. They condemned Jesus. And as Jesus himself said specifically to them, which of the prophets did you not persecute? And as for the Jewish people as a race, please understand that Jesus was a Jew himself. The apostles of Jesus who spread the gospel of Jesus, they were Jews. A great part of the early church were Jews. Furthermore, regarding unbelieving Israel, Paul writes in Romans 11 that he himself is an Israelite. And in verse 29 of that chapter, speaking of Israel, Paul writes that the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. And in an earlier verse, verse 26, Paul affirms a day coming in the future when all Israel will be saved. That is to say, God has yet reserved a day when there will be a great conversion among the Jewish people. All that to say, it is important when we read of the evil of the Sanhedrin and we marvel at the satanic wisdom that's found there, that we do not use that profound malicious hatred of God which they had to justify condemnation of the Jewish people. That view is not found in Scripture. And if that attitude should be found among any of us today, we would be in violation of Paul's words in Romans 9, 1-5, where he professes his love for Israel, and also the truth that to Israel belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. Indeed, the very promise of the Messiah came from the Jews. Rather than anti-Semitism among Gentile followers of Jesus, we should love Israel. We should pray earnestly for the salvation of Israel. And always remember that our faith came to us through them. No, no. What we read here is no cause for anti-Semitism. And so let's get back to our text in Matthew. False witnesses have come forward, some with outright fabrications, and in the end, two men who twist the words of Jesus to make him into a political revolutionary who seeks to overthrow the temple, bringing Roman reprisals. And in the midst of lies, a room full of lies, Jesus, the sinless one, stands there and makes no response. And he's fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So let's read Matthew 26, 62 to 64. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. 
tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You've got to imagine the frustration of Caiaphas. He's come so close to making the case for the death penalty. He's almost there. But since Jesus had said nothing in their presence, one wonders what he's going to do when they deliver him up to Pilate. I mean, maybe he's going to talk and deny all of this. He's not spoken, so what will he say in the end? So it's hard to know what to make of the high priest's question. I mean, was there something in the questioning of Jesus that opened the door for this? Had someone accused him of saying that? Or had Caiaphas just come out with this question out of the blue? We notice that he begins with the words, I adjure you by the living God. And what he's doing here is he's placing Jesus under an oath. He's using the sacred name to do it. And thus, it's the weightiest oath of all. He's taking away Jesus' right to be silent. It's impossible now for Jesus to refuse to answer. And the question is really, do you claim to be the Messiah? Of course, that won't do. He's got to get him to say something bigger. Are you the son of God? For if Jesus admits to being the Son of God, you know, Caiaphas thinks he's one. As Messiah, well, he'll seem to be to the Romans leading a rebellion against Rome. But as the Son of God, well, he would be a blasphemer against Israel and he should turn all of the Jews against him. I mean, no doubt, Caiaphas believes he's got Jesus cornered. If he denies being the Messiah, he's going to discredit himself. If he acknowledges it, he's going to be guilty of leading a revolt on Rome. And Caiaphas has not cornered Jesus, however. I mean, this moment was the moment that God had arranged by divine providence. This was Jesus' opportunity to declare his identity. And so Jesus quotes Daniel 7, 13 and 14. You know, in this passage, Daniel sees a vision. The Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man is given dominion over all peoples. And Jesus' words go well beyond the ambiguity that the chief priest had intended. But Jesus is clear. I'm not only the Son of God, he says, I'm also the glorious Son of Man. My throne is at the right hand of the power of the Father. And furthermore, I will come down from the clouds of heaven and I will rule the nations. You've got to understand what Jesus is claiming here. He doesn't blunt his words. He doesn't soften the blow. Rather, he says, I hold the most honored place in the universe. I sit at the right hand of the Father. And you've got to notice the swift reaction of the high priest. He's livid with rage. Matthew 26, 65 to 66. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Caiaphas' first act is to tear his priestly robes. That would be a sign of grief and of anger. He wants to give the impression of righteous anger. He says, we don't need any more witnesses. In fact, we need no witnesses at all. He has said it. So what's he said? Well, no doubt to the religious community, Caiaphas will say, this man claims equality with God, and that's a capital offense. So we got to stop here for a moment. Here's a word to those who confess Jesus as a prophet and a great moral teacher, a visionary leader, one of the world's greatest teachers, but who don't believe that he's the Son of God. Understand this, that Jesus could have saved his life by denying that he was the Son of God, but he insisted on it. 
John 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. This is the charge brought against Jesus, and it's a true charge. He made himself to be God, and for this, said the leadership of the council, this man deserves to die. And then instead of calm judgment, after all this, this kangaroo court, chaos now breaks out. Matthew 26, 67 and 68. Then they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that hit you? Mark added, they blindfolded him, and that would explain this matter even further. All that hatred, just pent-up hatred, now overflowed. He doesn't have adoring crowds protecting him now, they say. Indeed, even God doesn't seem to protect him. If he's the Son of God, then tell us, who it is that beat him while he was blindfolded. No doubt it was the underlings that struck Jesus, but the high priest was not going to stop them. And all the while, they were fulfilling scripture. Isaiah said it well. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. From the perspective of the Jewish religious leaders, they thought at this moment they triumphed utterly. From the perspective of Jesus, this is why he had come into the world, to be struck for our sins. My, oh my, what a savior, and what a story of the gospel. Thanks so much, John. You know, obviously a travesty of justice going on here, but how does this also warn us about the, the very me-oriented or very me-driven society that we live in? Well, perhaps the place to start with that question, Ben, is to simply answer that uh, the me-driven society looks so different than the kind of a person that we find in Jesus. I mean, he does what he does because he is submitted to the will of his Father, even while he is fully equal with the Father, um, yet he submits to the Father's plan for him even unto death. You know, in, in the me-driven culture, the, the word submission is a very hateful word, but it's a word that, uh, that describes Jesus perfectly. And so I think all of us as Christians today are going to ask ourselves, you know, what would be for us the example of, of the kind of humanity that we want to emulate? Uh, shall it be me-driven or shall it be submission to the will of God? And Jesus, of course, gives us the answer. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 
3315. That's 1 866 336 3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.